Hey, it's really good to be back. My name is Todd, and um, if you're new here, I'm not here all the time, and uh, I have been here uh, with the summer, and so that's why I'm saying it's good to be back. And uh, today, what is today? Uh, September 25th, a uh, very special day. Happy birthday, Emma. Anybody else have a birthday today? Okay, I asked if I could do that, so she is not mortified. But <laughs> um, let me pray for us, and then I'll tell you what, what we're up to today. So let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for, uh, again, your faithfulness, um, the faith that you give to us, and how our, our faithfulness is, is couched in your faithfulness to us. So thanks, God, for being who you are and knowing who we are and still calling us your sons and daughters. And, and might we hear your voice today, regardless of, of where we stand with you. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So uh, this morning, uh, we are going to take a, a break from our study in the book of Proverbs. And we're going to look at one of my favorite books, and it's the book of Philippians. So when you think about Philippians, uh, Paul is writing to a people who are, um, he's writing, first of all, from a very unlikely place to an unlikely people um, with, some, with somewhat of a very disrupting proposition. And so you may or may not know, Paul writes uh, from a prison in Rome where he w- awaits a hearing with Caesar. And he writes, ironically, uh, to these people with great joy. It's ironic because he's in prison and, and it's living a hard life at that moment. In fact, Philippians, as you, you may know, has joy and rejoice all over the place. 16 times it's mentioned in the 104 verses. We see that in Philippians. So he writes from an unlikely place to an un- unlikely people. He writes to the very first church uh, that was founded in Europe, a city in southern Greece, Philippi. He writes to a woman named Lydia. She's a businesswoman, a dealer in purple cloth. He writes to a, uh, a woman who was, had a demon who allowed her to f- tell fortunes. Uh, she went about mocking Paul and Silas on their second missionary journey, saying, uh, come and see these men of God most high. They will tell you the way of salvation. Well, that sounds accurate. It is accurate. But she was mocking them. And, and you may know Paul cast the demon out. And, he, and because of that, they were thrown in prison. And they were beaten with rods. And uh, so Paul writes to another person here in the Philippians. He writes to the Philippian jailer who places his faith in, Paul, in Jesus because of how they were merciful and they did not leave the prison. And the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So he writes to, from an unlikely place to an unlikely people with somewhat of a disrupting proposition. If you were to read the book of Philippians, and, and I have this week in, in thinking about what's this all about? And the book is about as people of the gospel, we are called to give up the life of our dreams to joyfully receive the life that Christ died to give us. For me, that's disrupting. I think for the people, that's disrupting. Give up the life of my dreams to joyfully receive the life Christ died to give me? Yeah, that's a disrupting proposition. And so we're going to see um, in this text of how the people responded to that proposition and uh, how, how are they going to believe that that is true about um, who, who they are and what God is calling them to do? How are they to believe that? And if oh, while we're not going to study the whole book of Philippians, I think our passage would address our hearts in hearing that proposition. How are we to believe that it's worth our giving up the life of our dreams 
to joyfully receive the life that God would give us through Jesus. How are we to believe that? So today, we're going to talk about the life-filling affection of Christ. The life-filling affection of Christ. And we're going to see three aspects of that life-filling affection. First, the connecting affection of Christ. Second, an outside-in affection of Christ. And third, a prayer for the affection of Christ. And the main idea, lest you miss it today, is that for this life that God gives us through Jesus... Um, it's the life that Christ died to give us is a life that he lives through us. The life that Christ died to give us is a life that he lives through us. So first, let's look in our text at the connecting affection of Jesus. Paul writes to the Philippians, and we see that in verse 7, he said, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Question, how did Paul feel about the Philippians? If you have your Bible, um, check it out. If not, just listen. Here's some of the words that Paul says of these Philippians, of, of Lydia, of the, the woman with, who was demon-possessed, of the jailer, of others who came to faith during Paul's time there. He calls them, in verse 1, he calls them saints. In verse 3, he says, I, every time I think about you, I'm so thankful Uh, to God for you. In verse four, he says, when I pray for you, it never fails. I always do so with joy. Why does he do so with joy? In verse five, he tells us because of their amazing faithfulness to support him from the very first day of his ministry and up until this moment when he writes, 10 years later, these Philippians in this church had been supporting him all along the way. And in the verse six, super encouraging thing that Paul says of these people, he says, you can take it to the bank. That that which God has started in your lives, he's not stopping on you. He's not giving up on you. He is gonna carry that on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So how does Paul feel about these people? He cares for them a great deal. And the the question is, um, why? (laughs) Why does he think that? And, uh, but before we get there, I would ask and have us think about how did these Philippians feel about these words that Paul said? How do they feel about this proposition that it's worth to give up the life of our dreams for the life Christ died to give us? I think that they thought Paul was out of his mind. (laughs) I think they thought he was wrong. Why? Look at verse seven again. Paul is addressing an objection. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you. It's right. I think the Philippians are saying, you're wrong, Paul. How can you say that about us? We know, uh, we know our, our sins. We know our weaknesses. We know our faults. Paul, all the same, is saying, it's right for me to feel this way about you because he shares with them a bond that is thicker than blood. He shares with them a bond with them so close that he sees them as being part of himself. He says in verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. He's very thankful then because they've been participating with him in supporting him from the very first day, but it's more than just their support. It's that they are with him through the thick and the thin by way of support, but also by way of, read in verse seven, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul's saying, we're in this thing together. We are in this grace thing together. 
He's saying, you've been with me through it all, both in the high tide and the low tide. When I've been in prison and when I've been out defending and confirming the gospel, Paul is saying, you know me. You know my track record of how I at one time put Christians to death, how I persecuted them. And all the same, you're with me now. And he's saying, I know you. I get you. I know your story, Lydia. He knew the story of the girl with the demon who, who had the spirit of divination. He knew the Philippine jailer. I know you. Paul is saying, we're in this thing together. The grace of God has surrounded all of us. And he is ex- expressing that I'm with you and you're with me. So he is saying, it is right for me to say these things about you. And even more, is right for me to feel these things about you because I hold you in my heart. You are partakers of God's grace with me. Paul saw these people as God sees these people. He is fighting for them. He is trying to communicate a truth that is hard to hear, a proposition that is hard to hear, that the life that Christ died to give us far outweighs anything, uh, any life of our dreams. Is there someone in your life who gets you, who is fighting for you to hear the truths of Scripture? Someone who has you on their heart? Um, For me, 12 years ago, um, we came into um, Redeemer. And we came uh, there having been on church staffs, working on church ministries, and and being around the Christian community for so long. Um, And we were excited about the Christian community. But when we went to Redeemer... Something happened uh, there for us that was new and, and, and unique. And what that was, was the pastor. <laughs> the pastor there, his name was Jason. And Jason, uh, you, you, many of you know him. He was very wise, had a lot to say, had even more to write. If you know Jason, he could write so much. But one thing about Jason that I most appreciated was, was how he wasn't as polished as every pastor I've been around. <laughs> He wasn't afraid to show how desperately he needed Jesus and to show that that grace thing that I was so desperately clinging to, he was too. And I felt a connection with him and by my hearing how he clinged to Jesus and had the grace that was his because of Jesus, I felt like I could do the same. He got me and I got him. Who is that for you? who is saying those things of how God sees you as as Paul sees these people who is willing to go there with you. So I think the first thing I want us to see about this life-filling affection with Christ is that it connects us to other people. Are you aware of those connections? Um, I pray that we could be more and more. So the second thing I want us to see about this life-filling affection with Christ is that there's an outside-in quality to it. And here in verse Eight, we see Paul giving confirmation of just how much he cares for these Philippians. We see in verse eight, it's a truth statement. If you want to, if you want to see how true it is, God is my witness. He says, "For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all." And we see uh, that Paul he is yearning for these Philippians. In other words, he's longing for them. Um, and we can, from that, I hope that you get an idea that he really values them. He wants to care for them. He wants to support them no matter what is going on. And uh, as I read that, I come away thinking, man, Paul is a pretty great guy for him to go, go there with other people, for him to put himself out there and be able to do that. And I think, yeah, Paul is a pretty great guy. 
I don't think he's that great, though. <laughs> and what I'm getting at here is I think there's something else going on here in, in, that's enabling Paul to care for these Philippians in the way we're seeing in the text. Because the source of that yearning, that longing, that loving, it's not Paul. Paul has the capacity to love because he has been loved. He loves because he has been first loved by God. And all who find themselves in Christ have that capacity to love. God has loved us and showing his love for us while we were sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. He has that capacity to love, but here even in this text, he has the character of one who loves because, get this, he is a character within him who is loving. Did you catch that? Not only does he have the capacity, but he has the character to love because there is a character within him who is loving. You see it in, again, verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all. How? With the affection of Christ Jesus. He yearns. He longs for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's not just sharing his Paul love for them. He's sharing Christ's love for them. And it's Christ's love for them that he is expressing. In other words, Paul is expressing something that is outside of him, that has moved into him, and he is, uh, it's, that's the affection of Christ. It's the outside-in affection of Christ that Paul is sharing, that Paul is experiencing, that Paul is witnessing in his life. And as we would think about that arresting distortion, disrupting proposition that the life of our dreams is nothing compared to the life that Christ died to give us. Know this, if you are someone for whom Jesus died, you are someone in whom Jesus lives. Galatians says this, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Theologians call this union with Christ. Huge thing. And I didn't even st- study about union with Christ to, to, until a few years ago. I'm crazy as that. So I'm guessing w- all of us might be like, union with Christ. What exactly is that? Well, union with Christ is first that you are in Christ. And secondly, Christ is in you. So you are in Christ. Christ represents his people. We have solidarity with him. We are united to him in all that he has done for us. Scripture would have us to hear things that are hard to kind of comprehend. We just read one. We have been crucified with Christ, okay? Okay, you're in Christ, okay? It also says you've been buried with Christ, okay? Kind of hard to understand, but hang in there. You've been raised with Christ. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So even though those things haven't actually happened to us in, in literal form, Spiritually speaking, we are in Christ. Those things have happened, are happening in us because we are in Christ. We have union with Christ. But not only are we in Christ, he is in us. He lives in us by way of how? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings Christ into our lives. He does so to transform us. Not to, to make, the, make us be the people we were born to be, but to make us to be the people we were reborn to be. Right? He communes with us. We're never alone. We have communion with him. The same Jesus who overcame temptation, he is with you. The same Jesus who, has, who had compassion in the crowds and healed the sick, he is with you. The humble Jesus who has 
who led as a servant washed the disciples' feet, he's with you. The same Jesus who shattered racial barriers with his teachings, he's with you. The same Jesus who suffered and loved to the very end, he is with you. And the same Jesus who was raised to new life, he is with you. He is living in you by way of the Holy Spirit. He's with you right now. So we are in Christ and he is with us. We have union with Christ. For God is my witness, Paul says, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So what, what does this mean? <clears throat> I think it means that we will find ourselves like Paul, caring for others with an affection that is outside of ourselves. An affection that kind of enables us to love others who are unlovable. And uh, I think it has me to think about who are those people in my life who are hard to love. And me looking at that situation is not, I can't do that, but how might God use me and love through me? So we're looking at the life-filling affection of Christ, and we've seen the connecting affection of Christ and that quality, and, and secondly, the outside-in aspect of the affection of Christ. But lastly, what, how are we to respond to that? And I think we respond in, first of all, hearing how Paul responded to it. He responded to it by praying. So a prayer for the affection of Christ. And uh, he says in verse 9, And is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Paul is sharing with us um, that which he wants for those he loves the most. Who are those people in your life who you love the most? Is it your spouse, your kids, your friends? Maybe it's a coworker, your parents. Paul is, is sharing with us um, what it is that he wants the most for those he loves and, and what it is he wants the most. He wants a love to grow within them. He wants this love to abound, to be in excess. And he uses the present tense ver- verb here. He wants it to keep on abounding and abounding. It's kind of like a shake up a can of Coke and open it. And what's going to happen? It's going to keep flowing over and over and over. That's what he is praying for this love. And the question that I was wondering is, what sort of love is this? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. That your love may abound more and more. I would guess it to be a love for God. Um, I would also guess it to be a love for others. Why? Because that's, Jesus says, what is the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second greatest command is to love your neighbor as yourself. So I'm guessing that this love is a love for God and a love for others. But it's not a blindless love. It's a love that has 20-20 vision. One that can grow only by way of knowledge and discernment. You see that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And this knowledge, I was thinking um, even today, um, what is, I think Dan mentioned, hey, what a great day. Sunday school starts. And it's a place where you develop a knowledge in who God is, who you are, and who who he has and who he is calling you to be. Um, And so a knowledge, I think, is an intimate knowledge of God, of Christ, a deep abiding communion with Jesus. If you're going to be someone who loves deeply, you need to know something about them. And so uh, 
I think that God, we, we learned this love abounds by our knowing, but it's not just knowing. It's knowing how to use that knowledge, and that's discernment. It's practical, on the ground, sanctified common sense, using knowledge well. And so why knowledge and discernment? Why this love, the prayer? Because I think it's needed. Verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. So that you might be able to assess to know um, right from wrong, um, to, so that she might know what is best for you, so that she might know what is excellent, so you might know the life that Christ died to give you, to know what is best. Not what is easiest, but to know what is best. Last year, um, I had the chance to take a sabbatical for my work, and uh, it was a three-month sabbatical, and and had a lot of projects to work on. And one of those projects was really important. It was to pick up the hobby of fly fishing again. So um, I still am fly fishing. And uh, it is something I would see myself as very much a beginner. Still very much a beginner. And many days I go out on the river thinking, what am I doing here? I'll open the fly box up and they're, what am I? I don't know what I'm supposed to throw. Are the fish low? Are they high? What are they biting on? And where are the fish? And... Uh, how am I supposed to, you know, there's so many questions with unanswered uh, that are left unanswered. And uh, it wasn't until recently that um, I, uh, for my birthday, was given a pair of sunglasses that were kind of extra special. These sunglasses, when you put them on, uh, you know, I've had polarized glasses, but these were really good polarized glasses. So I put them on and there are fish everywhere. You know, I can see the fish. And so it made my fishing so much different. Now, still a beginner, but I've caught more fish than not now with these, the clarity that I get through these glasses. I was able to approve that which was excellent. Have you been in a position where you are faced with not knowing uh, which direction to go? Having a hard time to approve that which is excellent. Maybe it's like you were like me. You couldn't see what was out there. Um, based on circumstances in your life. Things, the water looked cloudy. Life is tough, and it's hard to know which direction to go. Maybe it's a, a problem of having too many good things to decide of the good. What is excellent? Not knowing which direction to go with regard to family, with job, with friends, with relationship. It's, it's, not, it's not easy. Paul here is praying with a sense of urgency that this love would abound more and more with knowledge and depth of insight of discernment so that you may approve that which is excellent. Okay? So I think there, as we would see this prayer, there's a purpose for this prayer. We need this prayer whether we know it or not. And to finish, I would ask this question. How is this to happen? How are we to be able to approve that which was excellent? Or perhaps a better question is, why can this happen? Why is it that we are able to approve that which is excellent? And it's because this. That which is being approved is not something that merely will be. That which is being approved is something that already is. Okay? We are, Paul is praying that they might approve something that is excellent. Yes, something that is going to happen but it's also approving something that already is. We are able to approve what is excellent because of who it is we are as those who are approving. What am I talking about? I'm talking about verse 10 and verse 11. 
so that you may be able to approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What already is is that we have the righteousness of Christ now. For those who are in Christ, we are in Christ, and because of that, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He takes our sin upon himself, and we receive his righteousness. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died to give us the life that only he deserves. Our righteousness is not our righteousness. It's his righteousness that now is ours because of Jesus. This is sanctification. Um, it says here, so, so that you may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's a hard one. I'm not pure. I'm not blameless, right? We know this. But God, through Christ, sees us in that way. Sanctification is our growing in God's grace, whereby we are renewed in our whole person and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto this righteousness, to live unto this purity, live unto this blamelessness. So that's what's going on in this text. So we are able to approve that which is excellent because there is something already so excellent within us, and that's the righteousness that we are. And it doesn't come on our own. It comes through Jesus. And the, most, the greatest promise here is to the glory and praise of God. So as we think about this passage, it's kind of a passage where you, we read scripture and we're like, okay, what am I supposed to do with this one? Right? There's not really anything for us to do here. Is there? No command statements, no... Uh, yeah. But I think that there's something to consider here in terms of what does this... How is this text being used by God in my life in this moment. It's the illumination of Scripture. Perhaps it's to, to understand and for us to look into the proposition that the life of my dreams is nothing compared to the life that Christ died to give me. And to look into that to know that the life Christ died to give me is a life that he's going to live through me. What does that look like? Am I inviting him to live through me? Maybe it's this prayer are you willing to hear a prayer like this prayed for you? That your life might be one of abounding love because you need it so that you can discern that which is excellent amongst many things in life? Maybe it's that, um, yeah, we, it's that we are in a place where we need to invite Christ in and to hold, hold his hand. Hold thou my hand, um, as we sang earlier. So, I'm excited for you to talk uh, this week in your, in your community groups of what does this text require of my life? I'm not sure, but I'll be interested to hear um, how the Lord is leading you to, to hear this text read over you, to, to, to hear again that there's someone who gets you. There's someone who gets you and the truth of who you are in Christ uh, will be answered through a prayer that your love may abound more and more. So let's pray before I keep on rambling, all right? <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you for this text. Thanks for the chance for us to um, be here as a family with Fountain Square. And uh, Lord, I do pray that you would use this text to encourage us this week, to have us think about how it is that you live with, within us and empower us to, uh, to uh, be people who love in a, a way that's not common. And um, 
Lord, I pray that we could uh, experience you afresh here in this moment as we take of your supper. It's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.